Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Mostly Weather podcast. My name is Doug McNeil and today I'm joined by podcast regulars Claire Whitten. Hello. And Neil Robinson. Hello. And we're really happy today to have a special guest, Catherine Burnett. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Hi. Um, so today we are talking about space weather. It's a little bit of a, weather. a deviance from our, our normal... Uh, atmospheric weather in space <laughs> which is great i've really been looking forward to this this one actually um so i did astronomy my first degree was astronomy so, I, so i've been looking forward to this so uh catherine if we could start with you could you just tell us a little bit about your role here at the met office okay so i'm the space weather program manager here at the met office and that means i'm responsible for coordinating activity between our forecast teams our it team and our science team and I have primary responsibility for making sure that UK government and critical national infrastructure providers are getting the service that they need. So let's start off by talking about what space weather is, right? Because when I think of weather, I think of wind and rain and clouds. But, and, you know, presumably that's not quite what we're talking about with space weather, saying there aren't those things in space, right? Not quite. So space weather, we are talking about coronal mass ejections, we're talking about solar flares, we're talking about radiation storms. Um, but primarily space weather describes um, any changes in either the near-Earth space environment or in the Earth's atmosphere um, as a result of those types of solar activity. So it's weather in the sense that it's stuff that's affecting our day-to-day existence that's in our environment, but actually, you know, I guess like the name says, this is the stuff that's in space that's doing that. So, like, yeah, so solar flares and things like this. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I, I, I wondered if, if we might start with the kind of the basic physics of it or the basic processes that are going on. And, and I know in, in one of our previous podcasts, we looked at the structure of the atmosphere and we started at the ground. Um, and then we worked up through the atmosphere. And I, I wondered if it would be a good idea to maybe start at the sun, which I assume is where a lot of this space weather is coming from, yeah. and kind of work our way towards the Earth um, and then towards the impacts of space weather and what might happen. So uh, is, that, is that OK? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, so, so if, you, if you could start, start on, the, I guess, the surface of the sun or the interior of the sun, where do we start? Well, we don't actually know an awful lot about the mechanics of the sun and exactly what's going on. Um, What we're looking for in terms of space weather are active regions or sunspots. And we're looking for regions where there is no magnetic activity, no active regions, which we call coronal holes. Mm -hmm. Um, And those areas give us different features. In terms of the sun, you have the solar wind travelling out in all directions of space all the time. So the, so the solar wind is just the sort of the radiation Correct. and particles as well, right, yep. that are emitted by the sun. Yeah. Um, so on top of that and carried within it, when we have events on the, on the, Earth's, on the sun's atmosphere, are um, either an increase in those energetic particles in terms of solar radiation, or we have solar flares, which are bursts of electromagnetic radiation across the spectrum from sunspots or active regions. And associated with those are coronal mass ejections. So, so it's interesting you're saying associated with those. And from what from the reading I've done about this, is it, is it fair to say that a lot of the science to do with the way these things work on the sun is relatively empirical? I mean, I get the impression there's theories about how they're related, but the sun's really hot and really far away, so it's really hard to to, to research, right? And it, it's, you can't see very far into it as well. Yeah. It's my understanding. Is that right? Correct. It's pretty yeah. so, so this word yeah. empirical means that we we've seen these relationships between things. You know, they correlate and we've measured that they're related but we're not necessarily sure sort of the mechanism that makes one thing lead to the other right so so sunspots is famously kind of linked to solar activity right 
So what, what's a sunspot? It's just a like, sunspot I mean, it, is an, an area of intense magnetic field. Ah, right. Okay, so it's in the actual magnetic sort of spectrum then, rather than the kind of visual one. I do, we do, you know, we tend to think of the sun as emitting light, but it, which it does obviously, but it emits all kinds of stuff as well, right? It emits uh, all different wavelengths beyond the the visible wavelengths. Yeah. But you can see sunspots from Earth, is you that can. right? Because, yeah. yeah, even back in the sort of 1600s, was it Galileo and people were looking at the sun? I mean, they must have been burning their eyes or something. But. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably projected it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, what they were using to do that. But so a uh, sunspot, is that where the, I guess that's where the phrase come from. Yeah. It looks like a spot so you get on that the, the sun. Vi- so you get it in the visible spectrum as well then, do you? Yes. Yeah. I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah we look at images of the sun from the Solar Dynamic Observatory and that gives us a vast array of different wavelengths. So we have a visible one where you can, it basically looks like a yellow background and you can see the position of the sunspot. And then we look at other wavelengths that actually show us the magnetic field lines coming out of one spot and going into oh, another, cool. which help our forecasters understand the mechanisms going on. And is that, uh, is that, is that you describe the observatory, is that a satellite observatory or is that based on the ground? No, that's a satellite observatory. So I should say to, to the people listening at home that the space weather station in the forecasting centre here at the Met Office is one of the coolest places in the entire Met Office. So they've got these amazing, huge visualisations, presumably real, relatively real-time visualisations of what the sun's doing. So every time we're taking guests around to look at things, this is so a place we're sure to stop. So we should put some of those graphics up on the website for we people can do to that. look at. Yeah. I think so. And I was speaking to somebody that works on that desk earlier because, yeah, you're right. They look really impressive. But actually, I'd always assumed, you know, these are different pictures or different satellites because when we look at the weather, we have lots of different satellites Mm. to look at. But actually, I think it's the same satellite, but it's looking in different wavelengths. And at the different wavelengths, you can penetrate further into this as you say, quite opaque, some, but and you see different features at different wavelengths. So I'm guessing then you can interpret what you're seeing in those different wavelengths as yes, to whether whether you just get a cool picture or you're able to then see things like mass ejections coming out the side. Uh, so, so I know from, from doing climate research um, that sunspot data is periodic, right? So it gets greater and lesser in a kind of sine wavy type thing yep. with a period of how many 11 years? 11 years. There's 11 a years. solar cycle of 11 years from peak okay. down and, to and, and that's fair to say that's just solar activity as well, is it? So we're that's more like, just a count of the number of sunspots. But is that related to kind of space weather? Do we get more space weather on a, on a periodic cycle like that as well? If you plot the most severe um, geomagnetic storms uh-huh. against the solar cycle then there is no correlation whatsoever. Oh. The, one of the biggest ones we've got recorded was by Richard Carrington in 1859. That didn't happen at solar maximum. It happened close to solar minimum. That's interesting. So but solar minimum is, is no sunspots, is that right? Very few. Very few sunspots, okay. okay. So what do we use the sunspot information for? So what we do is we look at sunspots. We look at their magnetic complexity. Because what we know is the more magnetically complex they get, the more likely they are to flare. And if, they're, if you see a flare, then associated with those sometimes can be these coronal mass ejections. Okay, so it's not the number of sunspots, it's, this sort of, it's the magnetic complexity of the sunspots that's the thing that we're interested in. Yes. Okay, okay. So, we're, so we're on the surface of the sun now. We've got, got a, a coronal mass ejection, is that right? So that's, um, this sounds like a large event to me. Could you describe that kind of event? It can be a large event. So... If I st- you see a solar flare first, but actually that is the second mechanism. What's happened first is a coronal mass ejection, which is a release of a large body of plasma that then travels out through space. 
And if it's Earth-directed, then by the time it's expanded in space, it completely engulfs the Earth and its magnetic field. We're talking about a really large feature. But the solar flare happens when um, the magnetic field that broke to release that um, coronal mass ejection reconnects. And when it reconnects, that's when you see the flash of solar flare. Okay, so you see that flash first, I imagine, because it's... So it overtakes, because it's light. Because it's light. Correct, it's travelling at the speed of light. You see it first, so then you keep an eye out on another satellite um, image that we get um, to see whether there was any coronal mass ejection that happened at the same time. Ah, The speed of light is... Three times 10 to the 8 meters per second. So bloody fast, right? Really quick. But the sun is also really... Eight minutes. Okay, so it takes eight minutes minutes. for this initial signal to get from the sun to the earth. And even though that was produced after the the thing we're worried about, it overtakes it and gives us a warning. So how long is the warning in advance then? Depends how fast the coronal mass ejection is travelling. It can be anywhere between 19 and 96 hours before it actually hits the earth. Okay, so a convenient amount of time for humans to sort of try and prepare. So we need to get the model sorted. Enough time to do some forecasting, not necessarily enough time for everybody to do um, all the mitigations and preparations that they'd like to. But unfortunately, we don't know if that coronal mass ejection definitely will impact with the Earth's magnetic field and give us any negative impacts here on Earth until about 15 minutes before it gets (laughs) Because we have no other observations until it hits a satellite that's just at the L1 point, Lagrange 1 point. Lagrange, so that's a point at which there's uh, less gravity. Is there less gravity? No, it's between the Earth and the Sun. It's where effectively the gravitational pull of the two bodies is balanced and you can Mm. effectively park a satellite without using much fuel to keep it there. Oh, fantastic. So we've got um, three satellites yeah. there that so are observing key, the sun. It's getting the gravity from the Earth and the sun is pulling equally hard in both directions, so the satellite stays where it is and just gets stretched a bit, rather than <laughs> moving towards one or the and other. They're, and they're about 15 minutes out, you say, like in terms of... For the, a fast-moving CME, that'll be about 15 minutes before it impacts so the, the Earth. the coronal mass ejection is, is plasma that's yes. come off the sun. So let's talk a bit about what plasma is. So plasma's pretty cool, right? We've got three states of matter that we think about most of the time. We've got solid stuff, liquid stuff, and gas, gaseous stuff, right? But actually there's a fourth one, which is plasma. So as far as I can remember from my undergraduate days, plasma is just really, really hot stuff where all the molecules and actually all the atoms break down into ions. So you've basically, it's so hot that you've ripped apart all these bonds. You've even ripped off all the electrons from the from the atoms. So you're just stuck with positive ions, so the nuclei, nuclei of all these atoms, and then all the electrons floating about in a big soup. Is that, is that what a plasma is, if I remember that correctly? So correct? you've got protons, electrons, but you've got this embedded magnetic field with it. Right. And that is key for a coronal mass ejection because it has to be the correct orientation in relation to the Earth's magnetic field in order for the two things to interact and for us to feel negative impacts down here on Earth. So we have this thing called the magnetosphere, which I believe we talked about actually in the structure of the atmosphere. We definitely would have name-checked it, even though it's arguably not part of the atmosphere as such, right? But this largely protects us sometimes, a lot of the time, from these kind of things, but obviously not all the time, otherwise there wouldn't be a space weather department. So yeah, we should definitely talk about the structure of that. I've drawn a, a nice little drawing, which which these guys have been uh, yeah uh, laugh, laughing at. I don't know. Maybe I've just got back from holiday in Cornwall where I've been dodging things that look like this in the water. It looks like a giant jellyfish. <laughs> it looks like a giant jellyfish, but that's because I've kind of drawn it the wrong way around. But there's a reason for that. So if you imagine a bar magnet uh-huh. and the magnetic field that you would see around a bar magnet, so it comes out of one pole evenly round and back into the other, 
Imagine that. Then imagine the solar wind pushing on that from one side. You effectively squash that magnetic field on the sunlit side of the Earth. And then that solar wind, as it flies past the Earth and out of our solar system, drags that magnetic field with it. So you get a long extended magnetic tail at the end. Oh, and so when what you were saying about the magnetic field of that coronal mass ejection, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, yeah, you've sort of got one bar magnet, which is the Earth, and you've got another bar magnet being pinged out of the sun towards yep. the Earth. But the one that's the mass ejection could actually be rotating, it could be spinning. We don't know what position that bar magnet's coming in. So very crudely, you don't know if you're going to hit positive to positive or negative to positive. Or Correct, until you're that 15 minutes out when we get the measurement from the instrument on the satellite. I've got a potentially dumb question here. What's, what's the magnetic thing? Is it the sun that's the magnetic thing or is it the stuff that comes off the sun that's the magnetic stuff? Both. Both. The sun has a magnetic field, the earth has a magnetic field, and material coming off the sun can carry a magnetic field with it. So are the magnetic fields of the earth and the sun interacting, or is it mostly the magnetic fields of the material um, that's doing the interacting with the magnetic field of the earth? The latter. The latter, okay. Okay, So so this is why, um, so so we're imagining that bar bar magnet again and the the field lines coming off. And uh, often we see the, the magnetic field lines kind of grouped together more concentrated at, at the poles right mm-hmm. so it looks like the core of an apple sort of sliced in half doesn't it um so this is this is why we've talked about this briefly before but is this why we see the aurora at the poles we, we see um most interactions at the poles and, and is that where most space weather happens in terms of its interactions with earth or does it happen everywhere so you're right at the most the energy from the transfer of these two magnetic fields interacting with each other will travel down the magnetic field lines of the earth and initially that will be around the poles but the stronger that interaction the closer towards the equatorial regions that will so so i was reading about some of the strongest events you have aurora way down into the tropics which is just unheard of without one of these big space weather events so we've been talking about the stuff you know it gets the earth and does stuff and makes things happen we should talk about what these things are and why we actually care so i was looking at the history of space weather and did anybody else look this up as well who the first person to notice space weather was oh hannah i've got this in my notes name earlier uh, George well, Graham? Yeah, I've got George Graham in oh. 1724. Oh, even earlier. So, so, so George Graham was a, a clockmaker. I guess that was a really kind of academic thing in 1724 because he was also a member of, well, a fellow of the Royal Society, right? So he was a bit of a, a gentleman scientist, I suppose. And he noticed that the needle on his compass was twitching periodically through the day and wasn't quite sure why this was. And then a few years later, a couple of other scientists like Balfour Stewart and Al- Arthur Schuster who was one of the founding members of my physics department at Manchester <laughs> University. Um, There's always a plug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those guys really figured out what actually was going on and, and the fact that this was because of kind of um, solar effects. But So that's a very trivial effect, right? It, it screws your compass up a bit. But that's indicative of, of what else might be happening, right, and what effects we might feel. So why are we worried about this stuff? Yeah, did you want to pick up on the... On the I, 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 Missed the name you picked. Richard, uh, Richard Carrington. Okay. Okay, so he was, in 1859, the first one that realised actually he was studying sunspots and he saw a flare and then a few days later they saw a geomagnetic storm and they had aurora down as far south as the Caribbean. Okay, so he was the things. first to link okay. those two things together, so a slightly different discovery. So the aurora down in the Caribbean, I mean, that's a long way south yes. and because it was such a massive event, 
So these big events, that's one of the impacts that you see is that the aurora looks nice and pretty much further south, but actually is causing all sorts of other potential impacts. Yeah, obviously back then they didn't have very much technology that was likely to be impacted by these types of events. So the only thing that was impacted was the telegraph system. So they had things like the telegraph system working even though it wasn't powered because there was enough electricity induced into the system. Yeah, so we should talk... um so that a big magnetic pulse is coming off the sun. And to be clear, magnetism and, and electricity are two sides of the same coin in physics. You know, they were spotted separately, but then they were, they were unified into the electromagnetic force. So we've got, obviously, a lot of electric stuff now. And these magnetic fields can disrupt the, the electric currents in, in devices. So when you get really strong electromagnetic forces, you can really fry these circuits and stuff. And this, is, this has been weaponized now, right? Uh, you know, there's these ideas of electromagnetic pulse kind of weapons in sci-fi novels and stuff that can knock out electric circuits, right? By inducing voltages and breaking them. So this is what was happening with the telegraph yes. wires. We and then basically, you've got a massive magnetic storm. It's inducing the electric current along its length. And yeah, even if they're turned off, it's working. And I heard that, or somebody told me that there, it caused fires, basically, mm-hmm. at the, the ends of the telegraph stations. Cause yeah. I guess so you have the electric field travels through the Earth's crust, but it's difficult to travel through the Earth's crust. It's a lot easier to travel through an electric cable. Yeah. So that is the route the electricity will take, and it'll damage equipment at either end of whatever the long conductor is in So between. this is called induction, isn't it? This is Faraday's law. So an electromagnet, it's like a backwards electromagnet. Can I have Ele- the, uh, the equation, please, Neil? No. <laughs> I, I used to know it, actually. <laughs> So, don't, so, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Do you thinking? He's thinking, yeah, it's a bit worrying. So an electromagnet, you pass an electric current through a wire, and that makes a magnetic field. Whereas we're doing this back to front now, we're passing a magnetic field over a wire, and that's making an electric current. And so in today's situation, you know, we've moved on a lot, as you say, Catherine, from, you know, telegraph wires to massive uh, electricity networks and grids and... So I'm assuming that as technology has advanced, we've got a lot more metal around, a lot more power cables. The yeah. risk is increasing. The risk is increasing. Who, who, are your, who, who are your stakeholders? Who are you, who are you advising on, on, these, on these storms? So there's a, there's a vast array of, of stakeholders, so we'll, we'll take them bit by bit. Um, power grids are obviously one. So um, National Grid in the UK. We're looking in the UK that the power grid is one of the most resilient in the world. Um, a mixture of the fact we're a small country, so the, the long conductors are relatively short. Um, the system was built back in a nationalised environment, so we built for resilience rather than built for being cost-effective. So there's lots of um, dual connections and resilience between individual lines. We're spreading the load. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned the length, so yeah. that that's important. If yes. long, The longer the conductor, higher risk. the higher risk. Presumably okay. because you've got more sort of cross-section of the magnetic field hitting a wire, it can induce a bigger current. If I had the equation, I'm sure we could prove this. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the other thing, presumably, that means that we're more at risk nowadays is not just that we've got more electronic stuff, but more of it's in space. So more of it's outside this protective magnetosphere, right? So the, the satellites are really at risk, I suppose. So we've got CMEs that can um, induce currents. So that's one area of, of impact. Then you've got the high energetic particles, your protons, your electrons that form um, radiation storms. They can damage um, satellites. Um, we can have currents induced in satellites to be damaged, but they so also that's physical are, damage. So this storm damage. of particles is causing physical damage because it's, it's it's frying the surface. Not not all the time. It has to reach certain levels, and then the electricity field 
builds up and then when that dissipates it's where that goes will it damage individual components and i guess since the satellites are quite sensitive you know tiny bits of microelectronics and things so they are built to, to survive in that environment so it does take something significant oh wow good resilient satellites excellent <laughs> <laughs> um you have the, the solar flares that give us this burst of energy across the electromagnetic spectrum um, interrupt our communications. So particularly we rely on HF, high-frequency communications, to to cover the curvature of the Earth. Mm -hmm. That's disrupted. Um, Therefore, that gives problems for organisations associated with aviation because they use HF comms to talk plane to air traffic. So in the case of one of these uh, flares, you're effectively talking about a, a comms blackout for yes. aviation. So, yeah. so, so it damages okay. stuff, but it also interferes with stuff, right? Yes. So you just get loads of radio noise and, and you can't send these signals between the, the, the instruments. Just check the scientists out. Between, between these things anymore, right? Yeah. Which I guess if you're in a plane, is not what you want to be happening. No, I mean... Uh, eight minutes notice would probably be enough for at least you to be aware of that, but is it... You likely to get any warning of this? You will get a probability warning that okay. it might happen, but uh, the actual event itself you won't be told about until it's happened. Right. Um, there are people who are flying in planes during uh, radio blackouts are perfectly safe. There are practised um, strategies for dealing with loss of communications. But if you had a significant event where those comms might be lost for one or two hours, then you could see perhaps aviation making a decision not to release any more um, aircraft into the sky. It's interesting you say people are perfectly safe, and I guess they're safe in terms of the planes aren't going to drop out of the sky, right? You know, they'll be able to fly back to wherever they're going, that kind of thing. But people at high altitudes are are exposed, right, to to radiation that they wouldn't normally be. So they're at risk from a sort of slightly different effect of these space weather phenomena, right? Yeah, they are at risk from a different source so that's the radiation uh-huh. obviously down at the ground the atmosphere affords us some level of protection but if you're flying at high altitude all the time so if you're crew then you're going to be exposed to a larger number of space weather events and your risk could be increased they are treated as radiation workers so they're monitored yeah. for that oh, so, really? so yeah that's so to be clear you know flight crew are exposed as standard to more cosmic radiation right, right. but um but during these events, they're particularly exposed being high up in the atmosphere. And presumably, yeah, that's just because they're not shielded by air, right? There's not as much stuff in between them and the sun. And I, and I think they get monitored as well. So if they are in the situation where they fly through a particularly vigorous storm, then actually perhaps their flying hours are, are limited for the rest of the yeah, year, I think. To, exactly. To reduce their exposure. So it's certainly an, it's like an occupational health assessment as well, the sort of space weather thing, which, you know, when you're sat on the ground in an office, you'd never even consider. But <laughs> And if it's just us, if we're flying and we happen to fly through a major space weather event, the level of radiation that we would get wouldn't be um, so significant that it would cause us a health problem. We're, we're, we're talking about the equivalent of maybe an MRI scan or an X-ray. It's, it wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary. But if it's happening every time you go to work, then it's the kind of thing That's you need to monitor. That's why they're monitored. And going back to sort of impacts on the ground and things that I've seen before, there have been a few events in the last sort of 20, 30 years, though, where we, we have seen these kind of impacts. So there was... Uh, Quebec's the famous one. So the famous was, one, That's yeah. 1989. We had six million people without power for about nine hours in Quebec due to a space weather event. And that was because the current that was induced looked abnormal to Quebec grid safety systems. So it effectively switched off parts of the grid in order to protect it (laughs) maybe computer said no but um, at least then there was no permanent damage 
as soon as the event was over, they could switch everything back on again. Oh, I see. So the, I, I guess it would be computer monitoring systems and being a bit flippant, but they would start to see small surges and weird spikes and it just shuts itself down safely. Yes. Um, Rather than just letting a fire happen or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, it's probably quite <laughs> it's not a bad idea. <laughs> well, there are two ways that a power grid can be infected. It's either by this safety shutting down or it is by damage to a transformer at a substation when this when the electric field comes out of a conductor and back down to ground or vice versa. But Quebec's a big city, so I mean we're talking it about It was a region. Yeah. It was the whole region. The whole area of Quebec. Yeah. Okay. So that's a large, large area. Uh, I could imagine that would be worse in winter as well. I don't, I don't know if it was winter or summer, but it's uh, yeah, it's, if it's snowy, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and was there also an incident in 2003 in Malmo in Sweden? Is That's that right? correct, yes. Okay, but so that was a bit smaller scale? Smaller scale. Um, they were doing some maintenance work on the power grid there. So um, we believe perhaps if they'd have been aware there was going to be a space weather event and they hadn't done the maintenance on the grid, there would have been enough of the grid up and operational to spread the load of the space weather event and they wouldn't have lost power. So interestingly, both of those places are fairly far north, aren't they? So I guess, like we were talking about earlier, they're proportionally more likely to get these moderately large space weather events being closer to the poles. I, yeah, I was wondering that. Is, yeah, is, is there a risk? Does your risk increase as you go to the poles from all of these events? Or sometimes is it just because you're on the sunlit side that actually you get impacted? Does okay, so coronal mass ejections, um, that is a geomagnetic effect. So the closer you are to the geomagnetic pole, wow. the more likely you're going to be impacted by lower scale events. And at the moment in the Northern Hemisphere, the, the geomagnetic North Pole is kind of over North America, Canada way. So they're at a greater risk than, uh, than does that, we are Does that wander around a, a lot? What's the kind of speed of that, that wanders around? I, mean, I can't remember. It, it does move, it does move but we're talking about over long, long periods of time. So. On, a long, on a long time scale. You're fairly long. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll come much back to more that. than our lifetime has to worry about. Right, yeah. okay. <laughs> That's what happened, though, isn't it? Uh, no, I think no. Maybe from a really academic perspective, but possibly from a societal impact perspective, no. Congress would go the other way. That's the only effect that we can think of, together, given that we're talking about all these kind of vulnerable systems. Yeah. So I've got the latest Met Office space weather forecast. Here. Yeah, let's talk about the, the Met Office space weather forecast, because that that's that so cool. If you read it out, and then we'll hear about it. So we'll put good. a link to this on the, the show notes, but um, it starts off here, forecaster overview, analysis of space weather activity over the past 24 hours. So that's interesting. So already there's a difference between this and the weather forecast because this is more of a, a report, right, of, of what we've been observing. Mm-hmm. So and is that because the history is important? Sorry, Neil, I'll just interrupt. Understanding what has happened in the preceding day or week actually has a very strong influence on what might happen today or next week. Or is it, it It's all review? part of a narrative. Okay. So... We could probably say that space weather forecasting is not as advanced as terrestrial meteorology. We don't have the observations, the detailed models, the scientific knowledge and understanding. So this is all part of giving a consistent story to people who are reading this so they know where we've come from and then perhaps where we're going to end up we in a few clear, days' time. We should be clear, when we say we, we mean mankind rather than the Met Office, Correct, right? yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so the first thing on the list here is solar activity. Solar activity remained at very low levels, but with an increased frequency of low-level flares due to the growth of a sunspot region in the sun's northeast quadrant. And it carries on like this, giving more details. Mm -hmm. And then at the bottom, 
We've got the four-day space weather forecast summary. So again, for solar activity, solar activity is expected to be at low or very low levels throughout the period with an increased chance of, you know, blah, blah, blah. So the, the point is that you're, you're showing what's happened in the last four days and then giving your sort of uh, empirical experiential opinion about what is going to be happening over the next few days, right? Correct, okay. yes. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? We, we do have models which you're inputting data to, not maybe not in the same way that we would with a, with a, a weather forecasting model, but it, would you like to talk about some of those things that we have? So the coronal mass ejection, we do model its transit from the sun to the earth. So the forecasters are looking at the solar imagery. They're trying to work out the sunspot that that coronal mass ejection originated from. They're trying to work out how fast it's travelling and how wide it's going. And they put all that information into a model um, that then runs on our supercomputer and gives them a timeline of when they might expect that coronal mass ejection to reach the Earth, if indeed it is heading our way, because it might be going over the top. I guess that's the key thing. It's it's only something that's shooting out towards the Earth that's actually probably going to impact us if it's... Well, also, if I've understood correctly, we don't model the stuff happening. We model... Uh, how it travels to the Earth after it has happened, right? After it's been released from the sun, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. So we don't have some nice, yeah, four D model of the sun like we do of the yeah. Earth's atmosphere. There's nothing like that. We're observing, and then we're using that to feed into um, these sort of yeah, time of arrival type models, almost. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Wow. So, so who else does space weather forecasting then? So um, the other two global centres that are manned 24 hours a day, seven days a week, are the NOAA Space Weather Prediction Centre and the American Air Force um, bases, both in the US. NOAA, I can't remember if we've talked about NOAA before, but NOAA is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration in America. Yes, nailed it. (laughs) Uh, so, So these guys are a federal body in America that deal with lots of things to do with atmospheric and ocean <laughs> science <laughs> uh, but also monitoring so they do a lot of forecasting a bit like the Met Office Correct. and space weather. Yeah and they were key to helping us set up our service so without them we wouldn't have been able to set up our so services quite so quickly. It's a, a recent thing isn't it the, the, the space weather forecasting service here? It is so there were two things that came together to set up the service there were we were having the Met Office was having discussions with NOAA Space Weather Prediction Centre about whether we'd be interested in doing space weather in the UK, we had a, the large volcanic ash event in 2010. If you, oh, 10 points if you can pronounce it. AFIOYOKO. Nice. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to call me out. I, anyway. I was going to say Claire will. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll move on. <laughs> Which led to UK government looking at a range of natural hazards and adding space weather to the National Risk Register and then obviously looking for a way to try and mitigate that risk. They thought it would be useful for the UK to have its own forecast service. So that's pretty cool. We're one of the only two places in the world, two countries in the world, three places in the world that actually does space weather forecasting. Well, on 24-7, a, on a map, I yes. think. Yeah, that's the subtlety. I think a lot of people are interested. But yeah. One well, of it's, not much, it's not much good doing space weather forecasting. You're asleep when it, uh, <laughs> when it happens, is it? There are a lot of scientific organisations that are doing a lot of good work into space weather, but as scientific bodies rather than operational mm. ones, they do tend to... Um, have automated systems that alert them overnight rather than actually being manned overnight. It's really fascinating you mentioned the eruption actually triggering some of the thinking because 
yeah, the National Risk Register in the UK, for those people that don't know, is that the UK government every couple of years sort of horizon scans and looks at what the risks to the country are uh, and then draws up um, a risk matrix, basically, um, and looks at sort of the likelihood of something happening over a certain timescale and then the impact it might have. Um, and I was involved in some of the stuff around the volcanic side, but the, the latest edition of the Risk Register um, has a nice table in it, which I don't seem to have brought with me huh. to show anybody, but I will maybe get that up on the show notes on the website. Um, and yeah, space weather is really up there as one of yeah. the the highest impact and also highest likelihood events. It's sort of, I think pandemic flu is the highest risk and then there's maybe coastal flooding, but then you get into space weather and air quality events and all sorts of things. Um, so I would never have really appreciated quite how seriously actually people so, are taking this. So I'd like to know what absolute worst case scenario is for a big space weather event. <laughs> we, don't tend to to, we don't tend to talk in absolute Worst case terms. We are in the National Risk Register. We talk about what is a reasonable worst case scenario. Uh What can we expect and plan to deal with? And that in the National Risk Register is based on the Carrington event of 1859. So it is a large, significant CME with radiation storms and solar flares associated with it that would bring us the full range of impacts. So what would we expect? I've got a nasty feeling you're going to say. Twitter would go down. <laughs> I mean, that would, yeah. that would we'd be in trouble, right? So, so that'd be I the mean, end of life as you know it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm being flippant. I, so, but, what would but, we expect? I mean, this we'd, is we'd first order, we'd expect satellites to go down at least temporarily, so no right. phone connect. No if you phone. if you look at the Royal Academy of Engineering report into a severe space weather event, it's very good at giving a nice plain English version of what the impacts might be. So, in terms of satellites, they're expecting an outage of about 10% of the satellite fleet. We're expecting, because of the modifications to the atmosphere, a loss of um, global navigation satellite systems, probably what most people commonly call GPS systems, for about one to three days. Oh, okay, so everyone using Google Maps, sat-navs in cars, all of that stuff. Yeah, and it's not just location, it's timing. GPS yeah. is key to timing. Ah, of course, a lot so of things if, rely on that, yeah. if you do your internet banking over your mobile phone, will you have the timing to say that your transaction happened at a particular time? Oh, interesting. Okay, and now I don't that, want the space weather event to happen. This sounds and, bad. And so now, we're, as we're talking about, you know, we're talking about space weather, but you start losing your satellite, you start using some of the these GPS signals, which we're now using for weather. So we're actually looking at impacts on our ability to do weather forecasting and to understand the weather as well. Really Cascade, serious, no. Cascading events. I know, cascading, basically. yeah. Okay, Sorry, okay. Carry but on, these... there's more to come, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We have investigated... Um, what the impact could be on um, space weather, uh, on sorry, meteorological satellites, mm-hmm. and we have tracked down how that data is communicated down to Earth. So we don't actually think that satellite data coming in would be impacted for a terrestrial meteorology oh, really? forecast. Yeah, good news. So that's good news on that part. Um, but yeah, your communication satellites, TV satellites. The vast array of things we use satellites for, even if the satellites themselves aren't damaged, has the atmosphere been modified in such a way that you can get a signal from ground to, to oh, the so satellite? Basically introducing a huge amount of noise kind of into the atmosphere, so your signals are going to get scrambled, even if the satellite's okay. You can't get anything that makes sense at the so ground. So we don't expect mm. widespread power cuts, for instance? We don't expect widespread power cuts, but we're not ruling out the possibility of localised ones, either because of... Um, these safety systems tripping Mm -hmm. or damage to transformers. But in terms of damage to transformers, the Royal Academy of Engineering report talks about two coastal areas potentially losing transformers and therefore losing power for a period of time. But 
to replace a transformer does take quite a long time. So those two coastal areas could be on backup generator for a number of months while they replace those gen- uh, okay. replace uh, those transformers. Are those co- is that like an example? Just uh, or is it are these particularly vulnerable coast areas? The coastal areas. Coastal areas tend to be more vulnerable for a number of reasons. One, they're on the far edges of the grid. Mm-hmm. Two, geomagnetically, the the interaction between sea surface and land surface creates a difference that's that makes them more vulnerable. Did see something that water plays a role yeah, so, in so the impact. Presumably, yeah. seawater is electrolytic. Is that something Conducting, to do with it? So it can yeah. actually conduct electricity. It's quite about well. the conductance of the two that's surfaces. That's really interesting. And being on the edge of the grid, I guess that means it can't dissipate this excess charge by, you know, because if it happens in Birmingham right in the middle of the grid, it can just sort of spray out its excess charge in all directions. But if you're on the edge of the grid, you can't so much. to go. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. And then Scotland will be more vulnerable because it's further north and closer to the geomagnetic north more pole. So it'll. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need any of that electricity. <laughs> but I guess the benefit is that we now know all this; it's understood, and so you, you know, the right bodies can put mitigation efforts into place. You know, if something were to happen, we understand where those impacts are likely to be by the sounds of things. So yeah. So government. Has done a study of all the potential impacts, um, so of critical national infrastructure providers like National Grid. Um, I guess the the big question marks at the moment are where people are bringing in GPS based technology. Mm-hmm. It is expanding so quickly, and many people are completely unaware that their system actually relies on GPS. And therefore, if it f- does fail, or, or perhaps actually more risky, rather than a complete outage of it, if it's, it's an just error. an error by mm-hmm. a certain amount. What impact that will have is perhaps less clear and there's more work to be done in there. It's an interesting example you give with the electronic banking system because that's something I would have absolutely never have thought of be affected by GPS. But, you know, the whole electronic banking system gets screwed up then that's... That's bad. <laughs> and we're back to 2008, aren't we? I mean, we're talking about significant impacts on on, a, yeah, on the global economy. So, so what if we sort of were to warn of a Carrington scale event happening in the next 24 hours? What would be the priority things people would, you know, start doing? I mean, closing satellites down so they don't get damaged and that kind of thing. No, or they, do we just they all would... sort of scream and run. <laughs> no. So, National Grid's aim would be with as much advance notice as we can possibly give them to bring all the circuits back into operation and not have anything out for maintenance. Then they can spread the load and That's deal with the impact. Um, like many other emergency responders, it's knowing when it's going to arrive so that they can have the people in the right place to do any repairs that are needed or to, to respond. Um, in terms of aviation and transport, again, knowing what might be impacted and knowing for how long and when allows you to have the right people in the right place. We may even get to the point, we're not there yet, but we might get to the point where um, similarly the way trains stop running because of heavy snow, they might stop running because there might be a space weather event. I mean, with things like the GPS satellites, presumably if the GPS satellites are going to get, you know, damaged, then that's that, right? I mean, the point is a bank, you you might just know that the banking system is going to be screwed up for a couple of days. But it sounds like this, I mean, this is, sounds like a really large and 
I'm assuming, rare event. So the last one of this magnitude was 150 years ago. Is that, is that you know, is it rare that it's been this long? Somebody or, told or, me a lunch were overdue a big event. Is that true? That's, see, that's not how <laughs> probability works. <laughs> no, that's right. One in every 10 year event means you get one every 10 years, just about on average, doesn't it? On average, on average. On average. So a Carrington scale event is probably one in 100 year event. And the last one we had was 150 years ago. 1859. So what's regression to the mean? Uh, I'm not (laughs) (laughs) Harking back to one of our recent episodes where we talked about disaster movies and things. I mean, it sounds like this is a prime candidate as well. Oh, I've seen a few disaster movies. Are there a few like this? (laughs) (laughs) That have tried to incorporate space weather. Um, Usually the physics isn't really that accurate. (laughs) Hey, that sounds really familiar. (laughs) Maybe we'll have to get you back on when we're doing our next round of uh, of disaster movies. I, I definitely enjoy that. Okay, and so, and so, um, so, what's next? What's next for space weather? What's uh, what, what's the Met Office's plans uh, for, for how to kind of develop the service here? Because it sounds pretty important to me. Yeah. So, in terms of developing the service, there's a num- number of approaches we're taking. Obviously, the scientific knowledge is very basic at the moment, so um, we don't have scientists within the Met Office who, like our climate research, are doing that basic research themselves. It's all done by academia and we have scientists here who reach back into academia to work out what are the best models, what's the best knowledge to try and bring through into operations. So is it a, a relatively small number of people who are working in space, uh, space weather here? How many have we got? Uh, we've got five scientists, uh, about 17 or 18 forecasters um, and three of us in the management team. Okay, so, so, so a good number of people, but compared to the sort of meteorological forecasting team, which is like hundreds, you know, that's, that's pretty small. Okay, yeah. but, uh, um, and so they're, they're developing, uh, other people are developing new models. I guess we've got a lot of collaboration with the states still as well. We do. We have a lot of collaboration with the states, um, with other countries as well, um, a lot of work with Europe. Um, we're also working a lot with our customers to refine the forecast service to be what they want it to be so rather than doing it from a this is the science this is what it can do it's well actually what decisions do the customers need to make what operational decisions do they need and how do we give them that information so they can do that and timeliness is obviously very important there timeliness is key um we're really short of observations um a number of the satellites that are up there were basically research satellites um, they will go end of life at some point. Um, we would like to have, be in a position where we had an operational satellite with data downloading regularly and frequently rather than risking data gaps on the, the deep space um, network. If we could get another satellite um, at the Lagrange 5 point, as you, so that you were looking at the sun before it faced directly towards the Earth, that would give us a few more days notice of any major sunspot coming around and any potential activity uh-huh. ah, so your this Lagrange five point is if we think about the earth moving around in orbit it's sort of traveling ahead of the earth but between the earth and the sun so it's getting a sneak peek or is it a, it's permanently fixed it's traveling in relation to us and the sun yeah. but it's more it's behind us effectively it's behind us okay yeah. so maybe if you imagine a triangle with like 60 degrees between Lagrange 5 and um, the Met and the Earth. Mm-hmm. That, that's roughly where it is. Right. So how does it stay there then? What's at the Lagrange point between? It can't just be the Earth and the Sun because it's not in a straight line between the Earth and the Sun, right? Is that, have I understood that correctly? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> 
Very cool. There's some I gravity. think they're just these magic points where yeah, the whatever. satellites need minimal energy to stay there. I, I, I'm going to say we're going we're to put a link on, you know, on the show notes to, to the Lagrange points because, yeah, this is important. But uh, yeah. The other thing that gives us is we're not looking directly at the sun. So we've got a side-on view, which is key to trying to work out how quickly a, a coronal mass ejection ah, is travelling. you get a parallax, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Because at the moment, you look at um, the sun's image, we block out the bright light of the sun, and then we see um, a coronal mass ejection as, as it looks a bit like a white cloud travelling out. And if, it, if it's a complete halo effect... We know one or two things. It's either coming directly at us or it's going directly away from us. Because <laughs> you're looking straight down the Because we're looking straight at it. We're looking down the barrel of the yeah. gun. Right. Okay, um, but if you can look from the side. If we can look from the side, it's a lot easier to tell. And, and I, I guess even not far from the side, right? Like like a bit of an angle gives you gives you quite a lot of information as to how fast it's coming. It does. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, so we don't, yes, we don't just want observations looking at the sun from where we are. We need sort of 3D information, basically. Okay, and, 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 and satellites take quite a long time to put, put up places, don't they? Are there any yes. plans for these satellites at the moment? Because that, again, sounds um, pretty useful. I think if we could get one up there, we'd probably be looking at 2022 before we got operational data back from it. Okay, oh, not too bad then. Yeah. That, 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 that feels reasonable. I thought you were going to say like 2050. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's lots of people talking about this one already. Yeah. yeah. Does that get us right there in time for the sunspot maximum as well? Would it? Yeah, perfect. Okay, well... Um, I think we, we should wrap up there. But first, we should say thanks very much, Catherine. That's uh, absolutely fantastic. Thanks for, uh, for coming in. Um, and should we, have we got the, uh, the web address of the forecast page so that we can, uh, people yeah, can check so that out? Yeah, so we'll put it up in the show notes. But if you just Google for kind of Space Weather Met Office, you should be able to find your way there um, rather than reading out the link. So, yeah, if you've got any questions about what we've been talking about today or any questions for us in future podcasts, then get in contact. So you can tweet me at Neil H. Robinson, N-I-A-L-L. Or me at Doug McNeil, D-O-U-G-M-C-N-E-A-L-L. Um, I'm on at Claire S. Whittam. But probably more importantly, if it's about the podcast, we've got our generic podcast address, which is at NW underscore podcast. Um, anything about the podcast, future things, questions, any further info you might want us to pester Catherine about offline then do get in touch and if you want to follow um, space weather activity at the Met Office we've got the Met Office space account Twitter account as well oh fantastic oh, we'll definitely we'll put, that, we'll put that on on the show notes so do check out the show notes we'll have some badly handwritten diagrams um, as well as some more useful information but some funky some pics yeah definitely thank you very much for listening please uh, give us a review on iTunes or get in contact uh, we'd love to hear from you and uh, we'll see you next time Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.